True Spirituality, Part 6. Salvation, Past, Future, Present. The Bible teaches that due to a rebellion, human beings fell at a specific point in history. And as a result of this, both humanity and the world over which we had dominion became abnormal. There has been a disruption, a tear in the fabric of the cosmos that has resulted in the chaos and disorder we often see in our world. In light of this, some might be inclined to consider the notion of God creating rational creatures who have the capacity to make decisions that have consequences, that's one way to characterize free will, to be an abject failure. But then Christ came, died, and rose, all in actual space-time history, and victory was won. When Christ returns, the evidence of his victory will be completely obvious. Yet now there is neither universal peace for the individual nor for humanity as a whole. The world as it is now is not radically different from the Assyrian, Babylonian, or Roman world, despite wonderful advances that do alleviate some of the suffering our ancestors had to endure. But does all this mean that between victory on the cross and now, that God did not intend that there should be any evidence of the reality of Christ's victory on the cross? Not according to the Bible's teachings. In a letter to Christians scattered throughout northern Asia Minor who were facing tremendous persecution specifically because of their beliefs, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the present life, Christians are called for a purpose, called to display lives that bring praise to God. And this is done as Christians provide the evidence, the demonstration of Christ's victory on the cross. The Christian is not called to present merely another message in the same way as all the other messages are presented. We must understand that it is not only important what we do and say, but how we do and say it. This is where it is helpful to point out that in the first chapter of the New Testament book of Acts, between Christ's resurrection and ascension, he gives a command not just to preach the gospel, but to wait for the Holy Spirit and then start declaring the message. Preaching the gospel without the Holy Spirit is to miss the entire point of the command of Jesus Christ as it applies to us in our era, just as it did for those in the years right after the events of his ministry in Palestine. In the areas of activities and service, both essential aspects of the Christian life, how we are doing it is as important as what we are doing. According to the Bible's teachings, we are to be living a supernatural life now, in this present existence, in a way we shall never be able to do again throughout all eternity. And we are called to do this by faith and enduring trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord, the ruling King who has the right to make demands of us in terms of what and how we think, what we say, and what we do. 
Christians are called to demonstrate God's character, which is a moral demonstration, but it is not only to be a display of moral principles, it is to be a demonstration of his being, his existence. Recall in this series our previous discussion of the Bible's teaching of Christ as a bridegroom bringing to bear his fruit by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. This is not to be seen as an isolated teaching since it fits into the unity of the Bible's teaching about the calling of the Christian in this present world. This is the second element of biblical teaching we have considered, with the first being the Bible's teaching in regard to the supernatural nature of the universe. That ultimate reality consists of two strands, the natural-slash-material realm that is seen, and the supernatural-slash-spiritual dimension that is normally unseen. The next element has to do with the nature of salvation. When I truly accept Christ as my Savior, the Bible says God declares me justified right then and there. What does that mean? God, as the judge, declares my guilt gone, that's a judicial declaration, upon the basis of the finished work of Christ— I deserved the full judgment, the full wrath of God for my sin, but the moment I placed my trust in Jesus, what he did on that cross is applied to me. It is the greatest of all conceivable exchanges. It is the Son of God taking my place, thereby bearing my judgment upon himself. It is not that God overlooks my sin. He is holy, and because he is holy, all sin results in true guilt. But when I accept Christ as my Savior, my sin has been punished in Christ, in history, space, and time upon the cross. And God declares me justified as far as guilt is concerned. It is as though I had never sinned. For those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, He has on the cross taken all of our punishment, which means there is no punishment left for us to bear, either in this life or hereafter. But because Christ is divine, God in human form, his death had infinite value, value enough in substitutionary fashion to cover all of the individual sin and all of the guilt of all those who will ever come to him. Therefore, for the Christian, justification, being declared not guilty, is past. But we must not make a mistake here. Salvation, as the word is used in the Bible, is wider than justification. There is a past, a future, and just as real, a present aspect to it. The work of Christ upon the cross brings to the Christian more than just being not guilty. In the future, there is glorification, which at first glance can seem to be an odd concept, humans being glorified. But the Bible teaches that when Christ returns, there will be the resurrection of the body and then an eternity in this renewed form. But let's go back to the present aspect of salvation. Sanctification is a word that appears in the Bible's teachings that has to do with our present relationship to our Savior and Lord. Especially in the New Testament teachings, sanctification is viewed in two ways— the believer as someone who has been set apart for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and as the process of living out that set-apartness. Now, with justification, 
which we have described as having to do with the removal of our guilt, there are no degrees because the guilt is absolutely gone. All who put their trust in Christ are declared, once and for all time, not guilty. Record expunged, rap sheet shredded and burned in an all-consuming fire. But in the question of how we live in relationship with God in the present time, there are degrees, both at different times or seasons in the Christian's own life and as compared to other Christians in their walk. We aren't talking about degrees in the sense of how saved and loved by God someone is, since on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross and one's trust in Jesus as Savior, a person is in relationship with God as an adopted, favored child. All the guilt is gone. Again, there are no degrees of saved, adopted, and loved, since the Christian is as saved, adopted, and loved as he can ever be at the moment he puts his faith in Christ. But there are degrees in terms of how closely someone is walking with the Lord and living in the manner taught and exemplified by Jesus at different times in our lives. The Christian life is not an unbroken, inclined plane. Sometimes it is up and sometimes it is down. While it is not possible to be more or less justified, it is possible to be more or less sanctified. Again, justification deals with the guilt of sin. Sanctification deals with the power of sin in the Christian's life. And there are degrees in this in our own personal experiences. So even though our Christian life can have ups and downs, we are to look at our salvation as a unity, an unbroken flowing stream from justification through sanctification to glorification. The Apostle Paul outlines this in two passages in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So we see that the word salvation encompasses the whole, justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is once for all, sanctification is continuous from our acceptance of Christ right up to our death. This study of the Christian life and true spirituality falls within the present portion of our salvation. That is, this entire series is an examination of the biblical teaching of sanctification, which has to do with living out the reality of a personal relationship with the infinite, personal God who is there, which, 
the Bible also teaches with clarity, is mankind's purpose. To love God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind. The questions surrounding life's purpose and meaning, what it means to be human, are perhaps the deepest and most profound one can ask. What is humanity's purpose? What is the meaning of life if purpose and meaning are valid concepts? To that question, the purely naturalistic perspective faces the difficult challenge of providing the grounding for anything deeper than that which attaches to mere survival and propagation of the species. Now hear me very clearly when I say that this does not mean that a naturalist, such as an atheist or agnostic, by default doesn't live a wonderfully meaningful life doing amazing, difference-making things for themselves, those around them, and even on the grandest scale, perhaps touching the lives of the entire planet. However, the exceedingly difficult challenge remains of providing a compelling argument for a source of inherent meaning in a purely material existence. Many heavyweight intellects have tried and continue philosophizing even today, but few have the raw intellectual horsepower of the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Though there were plenty of unbelievers before him, Nietzsche was perhaps the first atheist to confront and expound on the horrifying and to some exhilarating consequences of the death of God in the greater post-enlightenment culture. In essence, he smashed the silly notion that a purely material universe has any inherent meaning whatsoever. Nietzsche recognized that you can get rid of God only if you also do away with innate meaning, since as long as a sense of purpose and meaning appears to be built into the human psyche and our overall sense of what and who we are, one has to account for why that is the case. What is the ground from which our sense of meaning and purpose in life springs? Those aligned with naturalist-slash-materialist thinking must be prepared to pay the full price of their ticket to naturalism or atheism and to see where it drops them off. Nietzsche wanted to look life squarely in the eye with no God to obstruct his vision, and the picture he saw was jarring. He saw no vast intellect behind the framing of the universe. He heard no transcending voice giving counsel to the world. He saw no light at the end of the tunnel, and he felt the loneliness of existence in its most desolate form. He writes about this. Contrast this with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and those before them that they read, quoted, and referenced, such as Moses, David, Solomon, and the prophets. Human beings were created by God for a willful, loving relationship with Him. And this loving is not meant to be vague or confined to mechanical religiosity, but a genuine communication with God, the finite person thinking and acting and feeling, being in relationship with the infinite, not a bare infinite force or power, but an infinite being who is a personal God with whom real communication is possible. This is the purpose of man that was disrupted by the fall. And when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, the guilt that has separated me from God and from the fulfillment of my purpose is removed. 
I then stand in the place in which man was made to stand at his creation, not just in some far-off day in the millennial reign of Christ, nor in eternity, but now. I am returned to the place for which I was made at the very beginning. I am immediately in a new and living relationship with each of the three persons of the Trinity. When I have accepted Christ as my Savior, I immediately come into a new relationship with the Father, and I become His child in the sense of the creature in the proper place for which He was made in the first place. This view serves as the very ground of life's meaning as most try to find and then live it. Second, I come into a new relationship with God the Son, which the Bible speaks of as a mystical union with Christ. We are in Christ. Finally, the Bible says we also enter a new relationship with the Holy Spirit as we are indwelt by Him. He resides within the very essence of our being, our soul. So for the Christian, life's true meaning is experienced now, in the present life, as being justified and in a personal relationship with God the Father as my Father. I am in union with the Son, and I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is not just meant to be doctrinal. It is what I have now, and it is the answer to meaning and purpose in the most perfect sense imaginable. And this starts with faith, which is a wholehearted trust. It is believing God, ceasing to call him a liar. It is not disengaging the intellect in favor of a blind leap into the dark abyss of wishful thinking. It is believing and then acting on a view of ultimate reality, a view of the total universe that is reasonable even when there's room for doubt. Our justification before a holy God is only on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Faith is the instrument by which we accept that finished work. But to be clear, the basis of our salvation is not our faith, it is the finished work of Christ. Faith is the instrument to receive this thing from God that Christ has purchased for us. Salvation is a single piece and yet a flowing stream. I became a Christian once for all upon the basis of the finished work of Christ through faith. That is justification. The Christian life, sanctification, operates on the same basis, but moment by moment. There is the same base, Christ's work, and the same instrument, faith. The only difference is that one, justification, is once for all, and the other, sanctification, is moment by moment. The whole unity of the Bible's teaching stands solid at this place. But the how of the Christian life isn't in our own strength, but through the power of the crucified and risen Lord, through the agency of the indwelling Holy Spirit by faith, moment by moment. This is true spirituality.